This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President of Montessori Europe, and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook, Basic Montessori, and founder of the software firm, My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this third of three podcasts on the theme of equality, Barbara and David are joined by two guests, Zainab Shamis Salim, founder of The Montessori Studio, a consultancy that aims to make Montessori more accessible to those who see it as elitist and not for people like us. Much of her work addresses issues of diversity and representation. We also welcome back Liz Pemberton, director of The The Black Nursery Manager, a company that offers training and consultancy on anti-racist practice in early years settings. Liz has become a leading media spokesperson on race, culture, ethnicity, and inclusivity for under fives. Zainab, what is the significance of representation and misrepresentation in the struggle for social equality? I think from the perspective of a teacher and from the perspective of being in the classroom, um, the adults whom the children, three, two or three or even younger, come into contact with are often the most loved and the, 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 the closest that they have to their parents or their main carers. And uh, I think it's incredibly important it, it's of utmost importance that there is a level of representation which continues the thread of belonging from the home space into whether it's a childminding setting or it's an earliest nursery or it's a daycare or whether it's a, a council-funded uh, playgroup or a creche or <clears throat> any kind of space which is one of the early... Um, experiences outside of the home. I certainly don't think that you should only go to um, children's spaces with, that have teachers who look just like you and your parents. And, or, and I certainly don't think that um, you should only teach children who look like you and your child. But I think that there should be a, a fair and reasonable representation for anyone who walks through the door instead of feeling like there's someone here who I can relate to, who kind of has, there's a connection that this adult who I've rarely met any other adults apart from the adults in my family, they've connected with me. They've bonded with me non-verbally. They've opened up their space. The, the activities that they have in this space seem to connect with me. There's someone has thought about me before I have stepped in here. Uh, and I, I find the early years crucial. I, I feel it's incredibly unvalued at the moment in this country. Oh, what is it about Montessori settings or, or the families that send their children to Montessori schools that makes other people think, oh, that's a bit elitist. It's not really for people like us. It's not necessarily the fault of the Montessori uh, uh, approach because in this country, uh, the government has not taken the Montessori 
approach to learning within its early years um, provision, and it hasn't accepted. And I think it, there's a, there's a there's a there's such a, it's had such a huge impact on how we teach young children, but it is yet to be funded. Um, it's had it's probably had the biggest impact of any kind of uh, approach to teaching, particularly young children. Mm-hmm. I have two children. My daughter went to a Montessori nursery for a few months before the pandemic, um, as she was three years old and she ha- was uh, allotted government hours. But I would love to send my children to a Montessori primary school, but there is absolutely no way I could afford that. Barbara and I were talking about this um, difficulty in going back to the issue of r- racism and prejudice, that um, there's a difficulty that there's the people who, you know, often white, often older, who think, I know what's needed. And, you know, they make some kind of provision available um, for the families who have a need. Um, but there's something wrong in that, you know, they're not saying, well, let's reinvent the way we do things so that there's opportunities for everyone. It's more a case of, well, yes, we've got lots of money um, and we're, you know, we're charging a lot of money to come here. So let's have a few charitable places, you know, to help out those less, less advantaged. And it's, it's, it's patronizing. It's, it, but it's, it's a tradition in, um, you know, in any kind of social cause or any kind of charitable work, it's unfortunately a tradition that, you know, the people with the power um, decide, oh, you're, yes, you're a deserving poor person. So, you know, we'll, we'll throw some crumbs at you. So I'm sure that that's, that's how it feels as well. So it's great that you're actually making Montessori something accessible outside of that structure, if you like. I agree this, what Zainab says, but I would want to go back to this idea of representation that, um, first of all, lots of nurseries do have, in fact, virtually every nursery will have some slack to accommodate the needs of the family and will find ways how to uh, give access to those families. Uh, But the social divide is such that if the parent does not, even if they have the courage to come to your nursery, if they do not see themselves, if they are not visible in the parent body, they will not be they will be a little bit scared to send their child um, to that place. And I share this. um, This is my personal experience. We had a very small nursery in Oxfordshire for many years. We have always offered social services and the health authority at one place for a child who may need it. And only once in the 20 years that the nursery was open has that place been taken by the child who really deserved it. It was the middle-class parents who have... um, known how to access, who had known what to do in order to put the right case for themselves. So the the issue of representation is much wider than just seeing yourself mirrored in the color. It's uh, seeing yourself mirrored in social group, being able to think about yourself uh, in terms of who would I talk to at the school gate as I'm waiting for my child. Um, that representation can be still felt by fathers who are caring for children, not just by people of color, but um, or people who don't have as much. So it is really, really complex issue. And as you say, Zainab, it is a top-down approach. As long as we have got an education which um, 
effectively divides the provision for children into the private sector and into the state sector, that will be perpetuated. And those parents who can afford it will want to buy the privilege to their children, whilst those parents who don't see themselves being represented, despite of what may be available in terms of bursaries, will not take advantage of that. And local authorities have done a huge amount of uh, work to make nursery provision accessible to all children. And uh, But that the children who really need it the most, actually what is offered to them is so small in comparison to their need um, that the whole issue of funding for nursery education, which is available and Montessori education's benefit, Montessori nurseries benefit from state funding uh, to large proportion, um, it is still very, very negligible to what the child who is really in need needs. So this is a a hugely political issue and much more work needs to be done on the front of that. In terms of making Montessori accessible to families, um, I think that it is important, but we need to also remember that children from birth to six need to have the opportunity to socialize with other children, that the whole purpose of preschool education has always been the capacity to socialize, to see themselves beyond their immediate family, to be part of a community. And uh, it is for that reason that I think it is important that young children do have access to preschool provision uh, but preschool provision where their story can be seen and listened to. And um, for that reason, I really love that analogy of mirrors and windows, which um, Dr. Bishop has promoted through children's literature and the idea which was started by Emily Style. Um, um, in 1988, where it is important that you mirror the child. The child can see themselves in the nursery, but they can also have the sliding doors opened so that they can see them, see themselves and see others in the wider community. And I think that um, that is a really important um, opportunity for young children before they reach the second plane of development, before they are six years old. Because again, it is absorbed. It becomes part of their psyche. It, it gives them the message, I'm valued as a person. And because I'm valued as a person, I can embrace what I see beyond my immediate environment. And until we have an opportunity for young children to be to have those opportunities to be valued and be able to embrace other communities, we will not really change anything because we are perpetuating the old model of, um, well, you are special here and we are very special because we are this one Montessori nursery or we are this one Steiner nursery or we are you are a private school. It is really, we all need to engage in this idea of firstly giving the child the emotional well-being to have a sense of belonging in the nursery so that they can embrace other communities. I mean, that's my view. I, I think it's the, the um, power of the British culture, particularly in England, is um, 
is so over overbearing on the you know everybody the families and the young child's experience that it's it's very difficult to empower yourself against that um it's very difficult for both the parents who you know want their child to have a community and and a place where they feel at home and also for the child who's trying to find their way in the world who's trying to imagine a universe that they're going to have a you know a comfortable place in um it, it's so hard to invent that yourself it's hard for the nursery it's hard for the parents it's hard for the child uh and i think that's one of the reasons that progress is so slow is because we don't realize how strong the surrounding culture is and how much it limits our choice and how much it guides our behavior and and controls our expectations it's really hard to break ranks and be that be that one who stands out i think um i really <laughs> I really think the emphasis on language and vocabulary is somewhere that we can all action straight away. You know, how have we taken so long to use the correct uh, or the or the realistic terms for people, you know, without fear of being judged? Or I think, you know, making mistakes is something which always hinders people from trying and especially parents. And you can often feel that I don't want to, I don't want to go against the teacher because I don't want the teacher to negatively treat my child in the class I, I i i better not talk up too much because i don't know how they'll treat my child and actually this culture of being able to speak and make mistakes that's fine um i'm hoping that there's a slight sea change in the air at the moment so i'm very optimistic about that that the communication between parents with each other between parents and teachers between teachers and each other everyone is also struggling with their own um load their own house load and home load and everyone is is seeing each other's vulnerabilities and that is something so valuable that can bring families and communities together uh, and really pull together in terms of uh supporting young children particularly like you say Barbara before they get to the second plane to feel part of a community to feel seen um and if there is adversity to see it as a challenge and to see it as a as a good thing Liz, what are what are some um, practical things in addition to the communication and the language, which I agree is really essential? What are some other practical things that we can all do, each in our own sphere of influence, to take action against systemic institutional racism and cultural prejudice? I think one of the things that we kind of t- we touched on before was about being in the positionality of listening. And getting used to making sure that we understand that the children and the families are the experts of their own cultural, religious, you know, identities. And that we move away from this reductive approach to cultural celebration. So a conversation I've had very recently was in light of Lunar New Year. And I looked at what was happening in this reductive approach that we had to festivals and celebrations which is born out of this 1980s concept of multiculturalism moving into the 90s and all of the people that dictated what happened in early years practice were publications and the media and and early years training so what it means is that now in 2021 we've got a framework of trying to upskill a workforce in terms of their racial literacy and an understanding of the impact of, of of culture but they're using a framework which tells them that Lunar New Year is Chinese New Year. 
and to celebrate Chinese New Year is to dress up, is to create cardboard boxes which uh, represent the, the takeaway and to eat pretend noodles made of wool. These are things that I've seen past, um, you know, a few weeks. It's absolutely devastating. It's disgusting. It's reductive. It's racist. It's deeply entrenched in a trope of colonialism and the white gaze once again. Interestingly, though, when I kind of look at some of the things that I offer in terms of practical guidance and advice in the webinars that I do. So I have a webinar called the inclusion, inclusion in the role play area and the pushback from practitioners racialized as white, the pushback, the absolute, well, no, this is what we're supposed to do. It's a nod to cultural celebrations. This is actually what the community wants. This is what we do. We dress up as Chinese people. What does that even mean? We dress up as Indian people. What does that even mean? And it's this very reductive approach, but also the the absolute outright um, audacity that anybody should speak to that and say, well, that's wrong. Have you been led by the community that you are attempting to nod to in a celebration? And why is it a celebration? Why is it this bolt-on approach? Why have we not moved forward with the time? So it's, again, about this positionality of who is listening, who is speaking, whose funds of knowledge are being acknowledged as, as important and whose aren't. When children and families are coming into this setting and want to feel seen and heard, do we want to be seen and heard in a tokenistic way? So when I say we, I speak as somebody from a minoritized community. No, actually. But also I recognize that and I use that Lunar New Year example because it's the most recent. I recognize that as a black woman advocating and being an ally to the East and Southeast Asian community that I take my lead from them. I take my lead from those people who are my friends or colleagues or peers within education generally or just, you know, people who I've grown up with, family members who are from that community. I take the lead from them. And it's easy for me to put myself in a place of being um, somebody who wants to listen because I understand what it feels like to not be heard. What I find in the early years is that the overwhelming um, whiteness in terms of the structure does not allow those practitioners to understand they need to listen instead of trying to dictate. So when we talk about practical advice, when we talk about ways in which we can embed um, anti-racist practice, I talk about these this pedagogy that I've kind of created. And I talk about the four E's of anti-racist practice um, and and ensuring and embedding, embedding, sorry, um, and extending. Um, I, I talk about all of these things because I want practitioners to actually stop and think: What does it mean to embed practice, which understands the harm that we've been doing for so long because a magazine told us or the local authority told us. What does it mean to extend the learning opportunities of the of these children? How do I as a practitioner sit and listen to what the children and families are saying? How do I ensure that that is being carried out? You know, what do I do? So I think these are the things that really link to the Montessori um, approach in terms of the pedagogy. It, it's a way of showing that actually these two ways of working do link together that the Montessori approach is not elitist. It, it's 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 rooted in something that actually I'm talking about now in 2021 as the Black Nursery Manager. This this four E's of anti-racist practice. The two things are interchangeable. They're transferable. So I think as a workforce, as as a sector, we have to move away from thinking we are the experts and we know everything. We need to move away from this notion of 
celebrating cultures without any information, without any knowledge of the communities that we are supposedly representing. Um, it's about positionality. It's about privilege and spending that privilege in a way that is not harmful or perpetuates deeply racist tropes. We talked about the celebrations in our conversation, Montessori conversation, that um, I have challenged exactly the same thing, you know, the tokenistic approach to um, to doing um, these things. Um, and um, it's interesting that both of you have alluded to the use of language. In The White Teacher, Vivian Gassin Paley gives a wonderful example of a child who was almost silent um, in the classroom. And she spoke to the mother and she realized that the mother used very soft language when she spoke. And when the child was hurt, she tried to use the same kind of language to make her feel better. And it was having this experience that the child suddenly found a way of belonging. Um, and she felt comfortable enough in the setting. It took very long time. And um, the conversation with the mother um, and reflection on the conversation by Vivian Gassin Paley enabled her to open the door to be able to help this child. And I think that is the challenge of our conversations that we are having, finding the ways of opening the doors so that we can see the individual child with their culture. The Teferiki approach says that children bring with them into the setting gifts. And we often overlook the gifts because we think that our agenda is so much more important. If only we could forget yes. the curriculum, if only we could forget the early learning goals, if we could just find the gift in each child, we would be where we need to be, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. Somebody, uh, you know, I was, I was speaking to um, a head teacher in Birmingham um, called Sonia Thompson, who is the head teacher of, of St Matthew's School in Birmingham, and she talks about, you know, makes reference to in her school curriculum, it's a school which is predominantly, um, you know, black, um, this invisible backpack, and we must nod to that invisible backpack. You know, we must understand that the children are coming in and help them to unpack that and understand that that, that is rooted in that theory um, that was set many, many moons ago. But coming back to that, who are our children. We can be concerned all we want with the unique child and the characteristics of effective learning. But if we're not going to take our goggles off and look at who the children are, that becomes null and void. It becomes dangerous. So I, I absolutely echo that, Barbara, in getting practitioners, getting the sector to understand, yes, it's great to have frameworks. It's great to have guidance. But even within some of the guidance that I had seen from the government, I challenged it directly because it spoke to something really dangerous and tokenistic, which encouraged practitioners to explore ethnicity, to explore culture, to explore, you know, and it's this, it's this, it's again, you know, a white saviour complex, this, this necessity to think that, oh, well, we will help the poor children. We will do something which will empower them to get from A to B. And we have to understand that that is rooted in a history um, and a pattern and a trend. It's always happened. Why do the early years think it doesn't affect them? Because everybody's kind. 
And that's why I talk about the danger of kindness in these conversations. It should not be used as a tool to erase why we must explore racism existing very, very much alive and well. Um, kindness will not stop your child from being racist. Kindness will not stop you from perpetuating very dangerous tropes that are rooted in blackface, yellow face, a history of absolute um, disgusting, colonialized <laughs> behavior. Kindness will not save you. And just because you work in the early years, it doesn't mean that you're not um, going to be doing those things. I remember one there was I was I must have been five I think and they were going around the class asking about our parents and what are your parents names and I just I just filled with dread I just thought oh my gosh what am I gonna say what am I gonna say and all these children are saying this is my mum's name this is my dad's name and I just I I I was so young and I just filled with horror and I thought if I say their names, no one is going to understand me. No one is going to understand my parents' names and they're going to make me say it again and again because they're not going to be able to hear what I'm saying and then I'm not, I don't know what I'm going to do. So it came around to my turn and she said, what's your father and your, your mother, father's name? And I just said, I don't know. And they said, you don't know? Why don't you, what do you mean you don't know? And I just thought, oh my God. And I remember as a child feeling so, um, I just wanted to, I just wanted to curl up <laughs> and just, I didn't want anyone to look at me. And I just said, I don't know. And then she said, well, what's your mother's name? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. And she asked me a few times and I thought, if I, if I say it, she'll know that I do know, you know, <laughs> But I also don't know what if what if I say my parents' names who have they've lovely Arabic names and you know what if I say their names in a way that they can't understand because I had obviously been asked three or four times what's your name Zainab how do you say that name where's that name from what's that oh okay can you say it again what you know and even as a young child your your name is the first thing that comes with you or apart from how you look and it can be it can set the tone for how you're going to feel in that space. The more I work, the more I come back and back to this is, is it's the child within us that has probably been, um, you know, reprimanded or, uh, you know, pulled into line that then projects that onto the child as to how they behave or what they say and what they do, that then it just creates these constant cycles about how children behave and how they are seen and whether they are seen as whole and complete and I still remember that so clearly and I can still feel that feeling and and it happened to me many times during my you know young years of feeling like the only Muslim child the only child of mixed heritage having to explain myself again and again and again and again to every new person that I met along the educational road um and it can really you internalize it though Absolutely. So then you become someone who finds ways of not being anything particularly uh, interesting. And you, you want to be as bland as possible so that you, and, and actually what I say to parents that I work with, as I say that, and I, you touched on this, Liz, is that, you know, the richness of the culture, we are the experts of our own cultures. And the more that we know, and the more that we celebrate in our own homes, the real uh, experiences that we treasure and that the traditions and that we have and we are not looking 
upon ourselves through the secondary white gaze. So seeing our family, like how can our family fit in with the uh, the general social consensus, the socially accepted family, but actually say, well, this is who we are and this is the space we take up and these are the celebrations we have. We don't do Christmas and that's fine for us. You know, we don't do Easter or we don't, but but I'm, I'm, I'd love to witness how you do that. And would you like to witness how we do this? And I think that's so empowering for parents is when, if you enroll in a school or a nursery or a creche or a childminder and that the person in charge says, we're so happy to have you. Let's have a discussion at a time that suits you about your experience so that when it comes to that time, we can provide your child with familiarity and they can be empowered and um, impassioned to talk about their experience without curling up and kind of becoming completely incapable of sharing out of fear of of being second-guessed or undermined or feeling worried about what they might say. And if, like, for example, we have a child who has just, in my nursery, who's recently arrived from another country and her name has changed to become an English name. And her parents have requested that we choose that we speak to her of that name, which is we call her that name, which is of course that's their choice. But it says something about uh, the the duality. That duality comes very early on. I wanted to um, put into perspective the the harmful, hurtful side of racism um, and how we should work with children to appreciate and understand. Uh, what's gone on in the past and what still goes on. And um, I think to just be, you know, all positive, let's all share our cultures and so on, you know, is certainly should be part of an early education. It's horrible being abused, put at risk, be always under suspicion or, or ridiculed or overlooked or lied to or taken advantage of every day of your life. So, you know, what's the right reaction to this relentless abuse as a human being? How do we, how do we prepare the young child for, you know, it's not going to go away, you know, for what, what's going to come? It's all the more important to use these early years to uh, give them that kind of outlook on life, which is very much as, you know, Marie Montessori hoped would be that we would understand ourselves as a citizen of the whole world and a person who has a deep level of care for all kinds of experience and not just our own. Thank you, Zainab. That was very well put. Um, Barbara, do you, do you, are you hopeful that, um, you know, through more years, um, more effort? Yes, I am hopeful. Yes, I am hopeful, but I also realize that it will take a lot of work. And I go back to encouraging everybody to just listen more carefully, to really hear the story the child is telling us. And by hearing the first story, everybody will be encouraged to listen more, to hear more stories, and to continue to learn from children. Because as I always say, teaching is about learning. And we need to continue to learn about the children and the families which come to join us in the setting. We each one of us have the power to make the change, but we must really want it 
and we must understand that we will not always get it right. There will be times when we will make mistakes and we will say the wrong things. And understanding that as a white educator, I have benefited from a huge level of privilege, which I can't even begin to measure. But therefore, I need to be more cautious and more committed to giving these opportunities to every single child in our setting and their families, because each family wants the best for their children. But until we hear the child and the family, we will not be able to give our best. I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, I think we should wrap up there for today. So thank you to Barbara and David and Liz and Zena. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next time.